Well, good morning to you all. It's nice to see so many of you out there today. It's a good crowd today. So uh, welcome to 110 degrees in Dallas, Texas. So great times. Huh. Well, today we're going to be continuing in our study of Acts, and uh, we're going to be calling today's message uh, Providence and Prayer. Uh, and we'll be going through the passage that uh, Mark read for us, Acts chapter 12. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get started. Lord God, uh, there is much that we do not understand about how our prayer and your providence works together, Lord. I pray that we uh, get some insight into it today. Uh, Lord, there are some mysteries that we just may not ever understand, but help us to be faithful, to continue to pray, Lord, and uh, help us today by the power of your Spirit to understand your words and to understand your message to us, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful Bible that you've given us. Uh, by it, we know, can know you and know how to get to you, Lord, and that's the most important thing. So we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, do you ever wonder why there is so much suffering in the world? When we look at just what happened this weekend, just two days ago, a duck boat capsized, right, in Branson, Missouri, and 17 people lost their lives. Uh, and yesterday, uh, some young man shoots his grandmother and then runs into a Trader Joe's and shoots somebody else, and uh, just random death gun violence that happens uh, around the world. And uh, if you watch the news, in, in one half hour of news coverage, you'll hear about things like uh, natural disasters, fires, earthquakes, tsunamis, or human tragedies like uh, hunger and suffering through around the world. And then things that we humans do to each other, like murder and terrorism and abortion and human trafficking, all of this stuff you can see in just a half hour of news coverage. And that's not even to mention uh, the Christian suffering that goes on around the world, which never gets any news coverage, right? So I struggle with the idea of God's sovereignty sometimes, and I would imagine that sometimes you do too. It's hard to imagine that God is in control of everything when we see these things go on. Why doesn't God protect his people? How can an all-powerful God uh, allow evil and suffering in the world? Well, Acts chapter 12 is a story about God's sovereignty, and it's a wonderful story. And what we need to realize is that nothing, nothing happens outside of God's control. So if something happens, it's because God either wanted it to happen or he allows it to happen. There's no other way that it can happen other than those two possibilities. So think about that. Uh, men have always plotted evil, right? From, from the time that Cain murdered Abel all the way through the present day, men have always plotted evil. Uh, and, and yet, at the same time, God sometimes allows the evil and sometimes he stops the evil. And we're going to see God do both in this story today. But this is also a story about the power of prayer and how powerful prayer is. The Bible tells us over and over again, to pray without ceasing, to never give up, to always be persistent in our prayers. Jesus himself was constantly in prayer to his Father, right? Always going up on a mountaintop to pray uh, by himself. And so when we think about that, we have to think that, that prayer is something that God wants us to do, and yet sometimes we are reluctant to do it. But if he wants us to pray, and God is sovereign. How can those things both be at the same time? How can our prayers affect God's sovereignty? That's the difficult question. And so we'll wrestle with that today. But this is also a story about praise. 
and, and glory. And who has to get the glory? God always has to get the glory. He will not share his glory, and he will not share praise with another. Uh, and so he will punish those who try to steal his glory and honor. As we come to the story, these events begin uh, and happen in, in Act, uh, Acts chapter 12, happens in 43 uh, AD. And a lot had happened since the time of Jesus' crucifixion, uh, going back a decade or so. Uh, Pilate has, had lost his position as governor uh, in 36. And there was a new Roman emperor, Claudius was his name. And there was a new king, Herod Agrippa I was now the king uh, of Israel. And so uh, that was what was happening, happening politically. But from the spiritual standpoint, many Jews were being converted and Gentiles were being converted now. And now they're going around and they're, they're saying that Jesus is God. Uh, and they're saying that it's not necessary to keep the Jewish laws like circumcision and dietary laws and things like that that the Jews were so dependent on that that was their actual identity. Uh, these people were saying that you didn't have to do those things anymore. And so to Jewish ears, this was blasphemy. And the fact that so many people were being converted, this was becoming uh, more and more prevalent. And, and so things were changing. Tensions were heightening. Uh, there was much more conflict between Jews and these Christians as the Christians became their own sect and separated from Judaism, uh, and the church began to face persecution. And, and you'll remember back in Acts chapter 5, remember it was the, the synagogue of the freedmen uh, who was looking to persecute uh, these Christians. So they're just a bunch of church guys, right? But now it's the king of Israel himself who is going to do the persecution. So it's reaching the highest levels of government. And this story unfolds like a three-act play. You have Herod persecuting the church in Act 1, verses 1 to 5. And then you have um, Peter being delivered in the middle of the chapter. And then finally, you have God taking his revenge on Herod at the end of the chapter. And yet throughout this story, you have the prayer of the people uh, somehow working to effectuate uh, God's will. So let's see how it goes down. Uh, in, in verses 1 through 5, we're introduced to the players in the story. And, and there's Herod Agrippa. Uh, he's King Herod Agrippa I. Uh, there are three main Herods in the Bible. This one ruled from 37 to 44. The main Herod, uh, Herod the Great was his name up on top. Uh, he was the Herod who ruled when Jesus was born. And then there's his son, Herod Antipas, here, who ruled at the time that Jesus was crucified. And now this is Herod's grandson and Herod uh, Antipas's nephew, Herod Agrippa I, who is currently on the throne. So it's a family dynasty that gets passed down. And so it's Herod Agrippa I now. We'll see Herod Agrippa II when we get to uh, Paul and his trial in Caesarea uh, in several chapters from now. So this family dynasty had gone on for, for uh, a couple of generations now. So we have Herod, and we also have James, John, and Peter. And of course, this is the inner circle of disciples who were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and got to see special things. They enjoyed a special relationship with Jesus. Well, the context of what was going on, we've talked about the political climate in Israel. Uh, there was tension between Jews and Christians, but there was also tension between Herod and the Jews. 
And that's because the Herods were not really Jews. They were descended from Esau, and that made them Edomites. They were not really Jews. And so they were put into place as head over Jerusalem by the Romans. And of course, that made them doubly hated by the Jews because they weren't real Jews, and they were, made, they were given their power by the Romans. And so uh, Herod is looking for opportunities to please and appease these Jews for political uh, currency. That's what he wants to do. Uh, and so it's no different than politics in our day oftentimes, right? The, the politicians want to know what their constituents think, and they want to vote the way their constituents want them to vote to ensure their political survival. And, and that happens uh, even today, just as it happened back then. So as we get into uh, the verses, uh, Herod is looking to please and appease these Jews. So in verses 1 and 2, uh, he puts to death um, James with the sword. Uh, and that likely means beheading. Uh, he probably was beheaded publicly. Uh, and so, you know, we often hear about Paul's death and we hear about Peter's death under Nero. But this is actually the only death of a New Testament uh, apostle that's actually recorded in the Bible. It's the only time we actually see that. The other stories that we know of are based on tradition, but this is the only one recorded in the Bible. But Herod saw that the killing of James made the Jews happy. And so he arrested Peter and he was going to do the same uh, to Peter. Uh, Herod's uh, kind of like a, a puppy. When you're training a puppy, right, you, you, throw, the, you throw the puppy a biscuit and, uh, and, and if, if, uh, if he does something that you approve of, you give him another biscuit. So give me your paw. Here's your paw. Give him a biscuit. Roll over. Give him a biscuit. Her Herod's the same way. Uh, if I can kill somebody and get some approval of men, well, what's that to Herod? As long as he gets the approval of men, uh, that's all he seems to care about. Uh, so he planned to do the same thing to Peter. So he arrests Peter and he puts him in this place that is called the Antonia Fortress. It's on this northwest corner of the uh, Temple Mount. It's not there anymore. Uh, it's, it's been demolished, but now there's a model of it and this is what it looked like. So it's a very heavily guarded prison where some of the uh, worst prisoners would be placed under heavy, heavy guard. Uh, and so Peter is arrested, and that's where he's placed, and he's put there during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, of course, is the feast that follows after Passover. And you know that because uh, of, of the uh, Jewish rule that, that men had to come to Jerusalem uh, for the feasts, Jerusalem would have been overrun with people, just so many people there, because they had to be there to celebrate this Feast of Passover. And so it would have been against Jewish sensibilities for Peter to be killed actually during the Passover. So Herod has to hold him in the Antonia Fortress until after uh, the Passover is over, and then he can have Peter killed. And so that's where uh, we find Peter. Uh, so what does he do? He puts Peter uh, under strict security while he waited for this feast to end. And we're told that Peter is guarded by four squadrons of four men. So they got 16 guys on rotation guarding Peter in this Antonia fortress. Uh, and so Herod more than likely knew about uh, Peter's miraculous escape in Acts chapter 5. Remember when they were in prison and then the Holy Spirit came and, and released Peter and the others from prison. And Herod was certainly not wanting to uh, have that same kind of thing happen under his watch to his humiliation and shame. And so you have almost this overkill of guards guarding Peter there, uh, being extra careful that, that he would not escape. But as we think about this, this is all human backdrop to the spiritual thing that's going on here because the church 
is praying earnestly to God for Peter's relief. And in a way, when you think about it, the survival of the church could almost be said to be at stake because James had been killed, a pillar of the church, a New Testament apostle. Now Peter uh, is about to be killed, and, and who knows what could have happened. They all might have scattered and fearing for their lives. Um, these Christians had no military might whatsoever. They were unarmed. All they had was the power of prayer. But prayer is no little thing, right? Prayer is invoking the power of God Almighty, enlisting him on our behalf. Uh, but so that's what they did. They prayed, and yet oftentimes we treat prayer as a last resort, right? When we can't figure out how we're going to get ourselves out of this problem or we can't figure out how we're going to meet this physical need that we have, well, then, then we turn to God in prayer when all else fails, right? And that's exactly the opposite of how we ought to be. We should always be going to God first in prayer, in constant conversation with God uh, about our daily needs, about uh, whatever is going on in our lives, uh, and just develop that ongoing relationship with God. That's what he wants from us. And he delights to give, give good gifts to his tr- children. So it's a shame sometimes that we, that we often look to God as a last resort because he's a personal God and he wants to bless us. And we truly have to believe that he hears our prayers and he wants to bless us. So sometimes I struggle with wondering whether God hears my prayers and is going to answer them, especially when I've been praying for something for a particularly long time, right? I worry, God, are you up there? Are you hearing me? Are you going to answer this prayer? And sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes it's wait. And many of you have been praying the same prayers for years and years and years, and and we still wait, and we have to trust in God's sovereignty. But if you doubt that God or that uh, God can be affected by our prayers, well, uh, let's read on with the rest of the story. We can see the effects of the prayers uh, on this church, and we'll, we'll talk now about how uh, Peter was delivered. Uh, so we have this rescue, uh, starting with verse 6. It's the night before the trial. Peter's going to be brought out into the public square, and it's going to be a sham of a trial, and Peter is going to be killed uh, publicly. His death is imminent. All that Herod is waiting for is for this feast to end so he can uh, kill Peter uh, without having to wait any longer. And, and there was no doubt he was going to be killed. Uh, anticipation was in the air. Uh, Peter is guarded between two guards. So he's sleeping, uh, handcuffed to one guard with this arm, handcuffed to the other guard uh, with this arm. And there are sentries at the door. This, this reminds us of what it would be like to, to be on death row. That's how securely guarded uh, Peter was at this time. But notice that Peter is sleeping like a baby. Isn't that amazing? I mean, his death, his execution is only hours away. He's going to be put to the sword publicly, and there's Peter sleeping like a baby. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because Peter had been changed, right? This is not the same Peter who denied Christ three times. This is the Peter who received the Holy Spirit, who saw God work miracles after Jesus had been resurrected, who released him from prison. Uh, he, He learned the peace of God that passes all understanding, right? Peter had that now. And so, he either was expecting God to release him from prison or he had come to the point in his life where he was content with death if that were God's will. And, and how amazing to have a faith like that, to be able to face death in the morning by the sword and, and yet be content enough with that to be sleeping. May we all uh, have faith like that. So if you're going through a trial now, uh, 
I would encourage you as much as possible to put your faith, put your trust in God, wait on his timing, wait on his will, uh, allow him to be sovereign in your life. He knows what is best for us. And, and as we uh, think about the struggles that we're having in our lives, uh, may we put our faith and trust in him uh, even more. Uh, he's not on our timetable, right? Whenever you try to rush God, how's that worked out for you in your life, right? It doesn't work out. Uh, God is on his timetable. He will not be sped up no matter what you would like to do. So uh, Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. So let God be God uh, in your life. Uh, Peter trusted God's timing and will, and God miraculously intervened. Verses 7 to 9, God sent an angel of the Lord. Uh, And suddenly, uh, light shone in the cell. The angel wakes up Peter, hit him in the side, said, get up, we got to go, get your clothes on, gird up your loins. Uh, To gird up your loins means to stuff your robes into your undergarments, and you would do that when you were preparing to run or to fight so you wouldn't trip over your robes. Uh, And so uh, the angel wants him to hurry along, and, and so the tension mounts, right? He's got to get past one guard, two guards, and then an iron gate. So how's he going to manage that? Well, Uh, He gets past the first guard, right? No problem. He gets past the second guard. All right, so far, so good. And then he comes to this gate. And how are you going to get past the gate? Well, the gate opens automatically uh, for Peter. And Peter, the whole time, doesn't even know what's going on. He's like, uh, he thinks he's seeing a vision. Uh, Finally, uh, in verse 10, we see that the angel of the Lord uh, leaves Peter and, uh, and Peter finally begins to get it. He's past the first guard, the second guard, the gate, and now Peter is all alone and realizes what just happened. Amazingly, uh, God has sprung him uh, from prison, and, and Peter is free. Uh, I think about that scene in the Shawshank Redemption, right, where uh, Andy Dufresne breaks through the, the sewage pipe and crawls 500 yards to disgusting freedom, right, and spills out into this creek and looks up, right, into the pouring rain and just has that freedom, the, the feeling of what it's like uh, to be free. And I imagine that that's what Peter must have felt like, uh, knowing that he uh, was not going to be killed in the morning. You know, he was probably content if that's what was God's will, but it's always better not to be killed with the sword when you have the option, right? And so, so Peter was, was quite pleased with how that worked out. So uh, in this brief episode, we see uh, God's providence in arranging Peter's escape And we see the prayers of the church ongoing, and we see Peter about to praise God. But the church did not know yet that their prayers were having their desired effect. So uh, we'll talk about the reaction now of the players in this story to Peter's uh, incredible uh, release. So as we come to verse 12, we look at at Peter first of all. Uh, Peter what does he do? He doesn't run for a place to hide. That's probably what I would have done, right? I would have gotten low, gone right underground. He doesn't do that. He goes to a place where other Christians are going to be gathered, people who he knows because he needs to get the word out to them and to James, and he wants to give God the glory. And so he goes to the house of uh, Mary, the mother of John Mark. Uh, this is the same John Mark who is going to accompany Paul on the missionary journeys starting in Acts chapter 13. Same John Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and his mother Mary apparently owned a house in Jerusalem where the people would gather to pray. And so there they are praying for Peter's release, and so Peter goes there. So Peter gets to the church, and so let's look at the reaction of the church. Uh, Peter knocks at the door, and a young servant girl named Rhoda uh, answered the door, and she was so surprised and happy to see 
Peter that she ran away and leaves him out there uh, to face whatever it was that Peter might face. And so she and the whole house had been praying, right? Uh, and, and so Peter appears at the door and leaves Peter standing there. And you can just imagine a Peter's reaction, right? He's standing outside of this gate and he's like, you know, I got the whole Roman army chasing me. You know, you think you might be able to open the door for me and let me in, right? Uh, but he doesn't do that. He's left to stand outside the door. Uh, and and uh, so when Rhoda tells the others, uh, what do they say? Well, you must be out of your mind, Rhoda. So there they are, fervently praying uh, to God for Peter's escape. And when it happens, uh, they can't even believe it. They believe that, that uh, she's out of her mind. And, and, you know, do you see yourself in this? This reminds me of myself sometimes. You know, I pray to God and not often or always believing that he's going to answer my prayers. I pray because we're, I'm supposed to, but sometimes I don't believe he's going to answer. And maybe you can relate to that too. But God can be affected by our prayers. And, and God graciously honors even the weakest faith as long as the faith is in the right object, right? If, if, if our faith is in the object of Jesus Christ, God can do miraculous things with that. Remember Mark chapter 6. Uh, when Jesus was in his hometown and could not do many miracles because the people there had no faith. And yet we see, on the other hand, uh, the story of Abraham when he was bargaining with God for the people of Sodom, right? God affected by Abraham's prayer. And when the people uh, made a golden calf, Moses pleaded with the Lord for those people, and that prayer affected God somehow. So how that all works together is, is hard to know, but maybe our prayer is the means that God uses to achieve his intended results. So we keep on praying, knowing that our prayer affects God. Uh, when we ask, sometimes we get. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. So let's keep asking. Let's keep uh, persisting. Let's keep trying to knock down the door until God uh, answers our prayer, just like in the story of the persistent widow. Uh, God will answer our prayers uh, according to his own timetable. Well, finally, they open the door for Peter, and they're completely stunned to see him there, uh, which is, is humorous, really, in a way. And, 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 of course, that caused quite a commotion, which is the very last thing that an escaped convict would want, right? He doesn't want a commotion. He wants quiet. He wants to be let in the door. Uh, and so he has to wave his hand to silence them. And, and he tells them the story of what happened, and he says, go tell James. And then he wants to get underground. Now, this, is, this James uh, is not the Apostle James. This is the brother of Jesus. He's the one who becomes the leader of the New Testament church, and he's the one who wrote the book of James. So a different James than the one who was just killed, obviously. But one of the first places that, that these guards might have gone to look for Peter would have been at this house. This would have been a place that they would have known about. Uh, and so Peter was looking to give the information and then get to a safe place where he uh, could be safe and yet keep this church safe. And so that's the reaction of the church. Now, when the soldiers get wind of this, uh, this is a bad deal for them. Uh, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers. Uh, that is the biggest understatement that you could ever say. Uh, they would have been in complete panic because the penalty for allowing a prisoner to escape is you get your head chopped off. Uh, so they would have been in absolute utter panic, uh, wondering and trying to figure out what had happened. Each of these guys pointing at each other. I thought you had him. I thought you had him. He was chained to you two guys. What happened? Uh, None of them could explain it, right? It was a supernatural sleep that came over them. The light shines in the cell. The chains fall from his hands. He gets through the first door, the second door, the noise of the gate. 
nobody stirred at all. Uh, no amount of NyQuil could cause this kind of sleep, right? This is a supernatural sleep that only God could create. And in the morning, these guys had no idea uh, what happened, uh, completely stunned. And so uh, Herod sent out people to find Peter. They couldn't find him. And so Herod turns his wrath on these guards. Uh, Herod was furious, of course, because uh, he had an opportunity to gain more approval uh, from these Jews that he wanted. And that plan was foiled. Aside from the humiliation of allowing a prisoner to escape under your watch, he would be a laughingstock for not being able to hold a single unarmed man in the Antonia Fortress. Uh, so uh, he orders the guards to be led out and executed. And so it's, it's really uh, an incredible look at God's sovereignty here because those who are about to cause Peter's execution end up getting executed themselves, right? It reminds me of the story of Haman who uh, built these gallows because he wanted to execute Mordecai on the gallows because Mordecai would not bow down to him. And in the end of the story, it's Haman who ends up being hung from the very gallows that he created uh, to hang Mordecai. And so you just see God's providence and God's power and what he is able to do. Well, with his plan foiled, uh, he's going to go up to Caesarea. But God is not done with Herod. God has not forgotten uh, what, uh, what Herod has done and what he's about to do. So he goes to Caesarea, but uh, before he went there, I just wanted to show you that this is the palace that, that he would have stayed in when he was in Jerusalem. Uh, this is a model. It's not there anymore, but uh, this is what the experts have created. And they said that this is where Herod would stay when he came there. But then he went up to Caesarea, and that was really his home because he would come to uh, Jerusalem for the feast, but he lived in Caesarea. Caesarea is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem here, and Caesarea is right up here. So when he got there, uh, he would stay in his palace. That was his regular place. And if you come to Israel with us next November, you can go to these ruins, and you can actually see these things that still exist. This is Herod's, the remains of Herod's palace here, and the Hippodrome is here where the games would be held, and there's the theater all still standing today. Uh, so that's where he was, and he had been fighting with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were two uh, towns up the coast on the west side, uh, a little bit further north, and, and those two towns were coastal towns that depended on Caesarea for food. And somehow they got into a spat, we don't know what it was about, but they wanted to make peace with Herod, and so uh, what we learn about Herod is that he lived for the approval of men, right? He would kill somebody in Jerusalem if it got him a little bit of praise from the people. And here, uh, he gets the approval of men by dressing up in robes and, and wanting to, to give a speech to these guys. Uh, and so that's what he does. And so uh, we see that in verse 20 and 21. He dresses up in his best apparel, and he's going to go out to receive honor uh, from these uh, people from Tyre and Sidon. And so his tragic flaw was that he wanted the honor of men more than he wanted the honor of God. And that's going to get him killed here in a little bit. Uh, verse 22, the uh, audience said that they were hearing the voice of a God rather than the voice of men. Uh, they were appeasing Herod, trying to make peace with him and shouting out these platitudes to him because they knew that that's what he wanted to hear. And rather than correcting them, uh, Herod, full of pride, accepted this praise uh, for himself. And I think about 
Hollywood stars today or professional athletes, how we worship these people like they're gods because they're good at a sport or because they, they have a whole lot of money. And when we treat people like gods and idolize them, we're doing no better than what the people of Tyre and Sidon did. Uh, it's idolatry when we aspire to be like them or when we give them worship instead of aspiring to be like Christ and trying to please God. Uh, we have to give glory and honor to God. Uh, so God will not share his glory with another, right? Verse 23, uh, it says that, that uh, immediately God took his revenge on Herod because he tried to steal God's glory. And he sent an angel of the Lord uh, to strike him down. Uh, and, and it sounds like when you read it, that it happened immediately. Like he fell down and he died on the spot, but it didn't actually happen like that. Uh, the Greek actually says that he was immediately struck down by God and it happened that he was eaten by worms. So the historian Josephus tells us that he was struck down on one day, but he didn't die till five days later. So can you imagine the excruciating death of being struck down and being eaten from the inside alive by worms for five days uh, while you die? Uh, not a pleasant death at all, right? Uh, nobody, nobody wants to die that way. If you could pick a death to, to, death, to die, that would not be on your list, I think. So uh, very, very difficult for Herod, but God prevailed against Herod. Uh, God's antagonist is dead. Notice that God didn't kill Herod after Herod killed James, right? It, it took for Herod to steal God's glory for him to be killed. And isn't that interesting uh, I don't know if this is true or not, but it makes you wonder about whether stealing God's glory is even a greater crime than murder in God's economy. I don't know. But when you think about the state of our country today and where we're headed, uh, is it any, any surprise that God would remove his hand from us because we've stopped giving him the glory in our country and, and have given our glory and our honor to others so we pray for revival in this country so that we would give glory to God and not to things that are not worthy of glory and honor so that he might bless our nation again. Well, the story ends like a fairy tale might, right? The word of God continued. Oh, I meant to show you that this is the Hippodrome, a better view of it. This is probably where the death of Herod actually occurred. This is where he would have received visitors like the people from Tyre and Sidon. And so if you go there today, you can actually stand on the very spot where it said that Herod was struck down. Uh, so interesting that, that uh, you know, in the Christian religion, we have actual historical facts and history that back up everything that we believe, not like some other religions that you'll find out there. We can go to the places where these things happen. We have so much uh, proof uh, that these things actually happen. So uh, just a word of encouragement for us about our faith. So verse 24, the, the, the story ends uh, like a fairy tale might. The, the, the church continued to grow. And it's just like uh, Luke has told us in various other parts it's a summary statement about the progress of the church and, and how great the church is doing and the progress of the gospel. You know, God has a plan for his church and nothing can stop it. Jesus said, uh, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, right? Uh, the church will always have enemies. From the time of Jesus all the way up till today, people will always persecute the church. They will always kill Christians. Uh, but Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, and dies. It remains only one seed, but when it dies, it produces many seeds. And we see that all throughout church history, from the death of Jesus to the death of James, 
to the martyrs throughout Christian history, the blood of the church has all, or the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. And history shows us that the strongest periods of church growth are the result of church persecution. It's always exponential growth that follows persecution. And so we don't want persecution, but God uses persecution to further his agenda. So let's think about some lessons in light of these things. And the first one uh, follows right off of that, and that's that we ought to expect persecution because when we stand up for Jesus as Christians, we are going to be persecuted. We've seen it throughout church history. It's not going to change. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, as a rule, government is no friend of the gospel, right? We certainly know that. And living in America, we don't face a whole lot of persecution. Uh, the worst thing that happens to us is we'll, we'll be insulted on Facebook because we've posted something uh, Christian that, that offends uh, some secular people. Uh, but the way this country is going, it may get much worse before it gets better. And we need to prepare for that. And we need to prepare our children for that because these days are coming when it's going to get worse before it gets better. But remember that God allows persecution. It can't happen unless he allows it and he's got a purpose for it. So we need to plan for it. Second, God is sovereign. I can't know what suffering is going on in your own lives, what you're going through right now. But all I can say with confidence is that God is sovereign. He knows about it and he's allowing it for some purpose. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He's going to use the suffering in your life for some planned purpose that he has. We don't know why God allows abortion or human trafficking or ISIS. We don't know why he allowed James to be martyred and Peter to live. Uh, he had a plan for each of their lives. At all times, God was in control and executing his plan. James glorified God by his death. Peter glorified God by continuing to live for another 20 plus years writing the book of First uh, Peter, Second Peter, and then Peter was going to glorify God by his death. So God is in control. God is sovereign. He's in charge of all events. And if we can uh, understand that and own that, it'll make our suffering a lot easier to deal with when we know that God owns it. Third, prayers are powerful. God is able to deliver us from our problems, right? He can do that. He has the power to do it. And especially, it's most gratifying when we are at the end of ourselves and we see no human way that we can get out of a particular situation. Think about this. At the beginning of this chapter, James is killed, Peter's in prison, and Herod is triumphing. At the end of the chapter, Herod's dead, the guards are dead, Peter is free, and the church is triumphing. What's the ingredient? It's the power of the praying church that activated God to do what he did. It's incredible. And so when you think about uh, our struggles with prayer, we can easily be distracted. Uh, we can start thinking about what's on uh, tomorrow morning's agenda, and we forget thinking about uh, what God can do. Uh, we, we think that you know, God is a vending machine, maybe. We throw up a prayer, and God will spit out the prayer requests that we want. But if God did that, you wouldn't really be God, right? It would be like a magic trick. You send up a prayer, you get the answer that you want. Uh, sometimes the length of time between your prayer and the answer to prayer is, is to develop your faithfulness and your trust in God. And so that's why oftentimes we have to wait. So God wants us to come to him boldly. He wants us to ask him to do things that only he can do uh, so that he gets the glory. Now as to prayer, 
we are in a spiritual battle. Do we understand that? Like, if, if we don't understand that we are in a spiritual battle, uh, what chance do we have? We have the demons and Satan fighting against us even now. Uh, sometimes, like when I'm watching a football game or I'm watching my beloved North Carolina Tar Heels play basketball and they fall behind like 10 nothing or something like that, I'm like, somebody should set an alarm and tell our Tar Heels that the game has started, right? They missed the beginning of the game. Uh, they forgot. We're only down 10 nothing. And, and the reason I say that is because if we don't realize that the game has started, that there's a battle going on, we are going to be way behind because we need to be praying against these demonic forces of evil that are out there looking to kill us, to destroy us. Can we fathom and grasp the seriousness of that, uh, that there is a demonic spiritual world that wants us to, do, to be destroyed uh, and killed? So I want us to try this. I want us for the next 30 days, if you're married, pick your spouse. If you're not married, pick a friend, a brother, a sister, a daughter, whatever. Pray with that person for the next 30 days. Together, uh, pray with them. There's nothing magical about 30 days. It's just kind of a habit-forming thing to do. Uh, we really should be doing this every day for the rest of our lives. But praise God for who he is. Ask him to fulfill your needs, whether they be physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever it is. Ask him to protect us from the forces of evil that are out there uh, in the world. The very best thing that God has for us is himself, and we get that when we go to him in prayer. So keep praying boldly and confidently and, and ask God and don't doubt what he is able to do. And finally, God must get the glory. Yep. God must get the glory. So God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble, right? Uh, he is able to do great and powerful things through humble servants. Peter gave God the glory. Herod did not give God the glory. Deuteronomy tells us that, that we need to leave room for God's vengeance. And I'd say that, that God took his vengeance on Herod, right? I think that's safe to say. He promised that he will punish those who persecute his church. So let's leave room for God's vengeance. It may be that he even decides to have our persecutors eaten by worms, and wouldn't that be just desserts to watch that happen someday? Yeah. So uh, we think about God, we think about his power and his providence, but remember that God will always have enemies. One day, uh, those who love God and who have accepted his son uh, will stand in his presence. Jesus died for our sins. He rose from the dead so that we can spend eternity with him. And those of us who believe that will get to spend eternity with him. And those of us who don't, won't. So keep praying, keep praising God and watch how God works through his providence in your life. Let's pray to him. Lord God, this is an incredible chapter. There is so much here. And we've only scratched the surface of what we could say about prayer and, and providence and how these two work together, Lord. There is always going to be tension between these two things. Uh, but yet you tell us to pray over and over again. And if it's good enough for Jesus, Lord, it ought to be good enough for us. Help us, Lord, in our prayers. Reward us for our prayers so that we will be encouraged. And Lord, help us to trust your sovereignty in all things, Lord. When we're struggling and life is difficult, sometimes we can forget that you are in control of these things. Help us to trust you, Lord, with even our suffering. We pray in Jesus' name.